Take your Bibles out. We're going to be in Psalm 8 today. Psalm 8. Let me open there myself. The book of Psalms, right towards the middle of the Bible. Psalm 8. Let me pray for our time in the Word. God, please use this time right now. Would you form something new in each of us as we look to study your word and grow in our knowledge and love of Christ? I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would be, do a powerful work in this room for all who are far from Christ, feeling distant from Christ, that they would be drawn close to you today through your word. I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, we are in our second week of our new Psalm series. We're gonna be going through the book of Psalms for the, most of the summer. And uh, the Psalms are a collection of poetry and songs that were written by the people of God in the Old Testament. So if you're asking, what are the Psalms? What, what are these? They're songs. Uh, they were originally intended to be sung. Most of them were sung throughout the, the, the year of the people in the Old Testament. Many of them were memorized by young Jewish boys and girls in the Old Testament days. And they were designed to explore the full range of human emotion. Now, if you think about modern songs, in, in a way, modern songs do the same thing. They express human emotion and all the different variations of things that we feel on a week-to-week or day-to-day basis. The difference with the Psalms from modern songs, uh, modern secular songs particularly, is that the Psalms are theocentric, okay? So it explores all of the emotions of humanity, everything you experience, all the, the ups and the downs, the joy, the pain, feeling betrayed, feeling angry, feeling, feeling love. It, it, it expresses all of those emotions in the beauty of poetry and song, but it, it teaches you to submit every one of those emotions to the one who can make good of those emotions. It teaches you how to submit them to God at the center, it's literally almost like a, like a rhythm of the heart when you read the book of Psalms. It's this rhythmic submission of all of life to God's will. And the goal of reading the Psalms is not just didactic, right? So it's not just learn the truth that the Psalms say. That's part of it, right? You, you want to know what does it teach? What are these songs communicating? And you want to store that knowledge in your mind. But when you read the Psalms, it's it's more than didactic. It's intended to be experiential. Meaning, you become the psalm. When you learn to immerse yourself in the psalm and you begin to pray the psalm, what begins to happen is that the psalm begins to come out of you. And in a way, you begin to actually pray and sing along with King David, along with the sons of Korah, Almost like when we sing in a church on a Sunday and all the voices are in, at one. They're proclaiming the goodness of God and proclaiming the mercy of God and we bring our hearts into unison with each other. When you learn to pray the Psalms, you're bringing your hearts into unison with King David. You're bringing your hearts into unison with the sons of Korah and with Solomon. And you're going all the way back through history and you're saying, I'm part of a rich heritage and a legacy and I want my heart to beat the way their heart beat. Today we encounter Psalm 8. Now, uh, God was very kind to me in my, uh, this last sermon as I take a break for the next six weeks. Halfway through the week, I, I just kind of had a time in prayer, and I, I honestly, this is the first time, uh, this might sound strange, this is the first time I've ever preached a sermon, and uh, the word that's come to me this week is, I feel completely unworthy to preach this text. Um, that's not saying that I feel worthy to preach other texts. It's just I was particularly overwhelmed this week by Psalm 8. 
Maybe, honestly, I don't think any words I say to preach this, to explain this, to teach this, to stir the emotions, to get you to feel what this psalm feels, I don't think I can do it justice. And so my heart for you today is that as I go through this, that you might then take this home and the little bits of seeds that you hear from today, you take and you'd reflect and you would allow the actual words of the psalm itself to minister to your heart the way it's ministered to my heart, that you might internalize it. The, the, the point of this psalm is that humans, we, man and woman, might find our right place underneath the majesty of God. That's the big idea, that we would learn to find our place underneath the majesty of God. Let me read Psalm 8 to us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and you've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Again, the main idea here is that man would find our place underneath the majesty of God. And I think, I think the psalm does this in three main ideas. And if you want to understand your place, if you understand who you are, if you want to understand your identity, all three of these ideas must be formational to your soul. Number one, we must be awakened to the majesty of God. And to a modern congregation with modern ears living in a modern world, this, uh, we like quick tweets. We like quick movements that you kind of give a nod of acknowledgement. I-, I want you to hear me. We must be awakened to the majesty of God. Whether you've been living as a follower of Christ for a year or for 60 years, we need a reawakening of the majesty of God. It begins this way, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. O Lord, first of all, let's begin with that first word. This is the personal name of God given in the Old Testament. What does that mean? It's it's like beginning a, a personal love letter. If I was to write a letter to my wife, I said, Dear Sarah, it's acknowledging her as a a person. It's not just saying a, a general term like friend or uncle, right? It's, it's the personal name of God that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is a personal reflection to a God that King David knows, that he's walked with, that, that he knows the characteristics and the attributes of this God because God has been merciful to him over the course of David's life. This is a personal love song to a holy God. How majestic is your name? That's a bit of a royal word. We don't use the word majesty all that much. It attempts to ascribe excellence to God, splendor, glory, right? It, it attempts to, to raise your eyes from looking at the things of this world and, and to just for a moment let your eyes be opened to the fullness of who God is, that he truly is majestic. He's the definition of majestic, Everything in this world that we think is beautiful, it gets its concept of beauty because beauty flows from the infinitely beautiful. He's, he's majestic above all the heavens. He references the stars of the sky, 
both in verse one, then again in verse three, he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in your place. I think what happened is, I think David wrote this when he was walking underneath a starry night sky. I think that's what he was doing. I think he was writing and, and, and he was walking and looking up at heaven and just simply seeing the stars and saying, you're, you're so far above and beyond every, every greatest thought I've ever had of you, God. And then he kept staring. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, you, you've looked at the stars, but then you don't look away too quickly. You don't let the moment pass, but then you keep staring. And you just stand in awe of the God who placed the stars in their position. Think about this for a second. Our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is a relatively small galaxy with 400 billion stars. I don't know if you can get a grasp, grasp that for a moment. 400 billion stars in our relatively small galaxy. Our sun is one of them, okay? Every star, not everyone, but most stars might have some number of planets, some number of moons around them. God knows every grain of sand on the furthest planet of our galaxy. And he governs it when the wind blows it across the horizon. How majestic is your name. Our galaxy is only one of two trillion galaxies, possibly, that, that we're able to calculate with modern mathematics. One of two trillion galaxies. And God knows the direction of the wind and the speed of the wind on the farthest planet of the farthest galaxy. He governs it all. How majestic is your name? And then if you look closer, if you look closer to home, consider the ocean, just our ocean, something as simple as that, as beautiful as that. Along the bottom of the ocean lie creatures that no man has ever seen nor will ever see. Creatures that would... If you, could, if you could see them in the deepest cave, in the deepest corner of the ocean, your mind would just say, look at the creativity of God. And even though no man will ever see it, right now, as they live, they proclaim glory to their creator. That's what they were made to do. They have no other purpose other than to just proclaim glory to the creativity of our God. How majestic is your name. See, we need our... We need our eyes to, to, to just be opened, to see the fullness of the God that we come to gather on a Sunday morning and talk about. I had a seminary professor who once said, make sure that every day of your life you pause and look and stare at something in nature. Have you ever done this? And I don't do it every day, but I do it. I did it this morning. I, and whenever I do this, it's so good for my soul. I, I don't want to sound overly mystical here, but, but if, if, if you pause and you walk and you just... You look at the bark of a tree and you just stare at it and you feel it and you say, God made that. Look, look, at, the, look at the ingenuity of our God. Or maybe you look at the even further details and you look at a, a line of ants crawling all the way up the tree in a, in a perfect order and you say, look at, the, look at the order that God has ingrained in even the smallest of creatures on this planet. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse two, I struggled actually this week to figure out what verse two was saying and then when it clicked, it, it blew me away. It says, out of the mouth of babes and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
Jesus actually quoted that exact verse in Matthew 21. After he got angry and cleared the temple, you might remember the scene, Jesus came into the place that was supposed to be the, the place where heaven met earth in the Old Testament days, right? And, and he came into the temple, he saw that they were, they were changing money and making a profit and using the temple for you know, self-profit. And he made a whip and he started driving out the money changers and all the religious leaders got angry at him. But you know what was happening at the same time in Matthew 21? It says the children were praising his name. It's an interesting little part of that story people don't see. Just a little phrase. And the children were singing praises to him. And the Pharisees, when they asked him, what are you doing? Why are you driving all these people out? You're disrupting the religious way we do things. And he said, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. See, what what this is saying is God is so full of authority. He's so above and beyond every enemy that could dare speak against the name of our God that he can use the, the gurgle of a baby to quiet his strongest foe. Do you see that? Oh, he, he can use the, the whisper of an infant to crush rebellion. That's how strong he is. That's how mighty he is. He, he doesn't need muscle to get the job done. He, he actually can and does use the weakest things in this world to calm the enemy. In fact, all through scripture we see that, don't we? We boast in our weakness because it's the power of God on display. We're just jars of clay. Second Corinthians chapter four, we, we boast in the cracks in our jars of clay. That's why as humans, anytime we find pride building up in us, we got Christianity wrong. We just got it wrong from the start. Why? Because all we are are, are, are these, these, these broken jars with cracks. And Paul actually boasted in his weaknesses. You know why? Because he said, because the, he said, the bigger the crack is in me, the more the light of Christ shines out. And everyone can see it's not me. It's the power of Jesus. He can use the whisper of a baby to quiet rebellion. How majestic is your name in all the earth? We need our eyes open, don't we? I think it was Augustine who originally said, our thoughts on God are far too small. And when you settle for small thoughts on God, you you end up living a a very boring Christian life. You you lose the wonder. You You lose the awe of the whole thing that you've been invited into. The cross becomes rote. Jesus becomes humdrum. And every once in a while, you need to just open your eyes and say, this is so much bigger than my little life. Pastor John Piper, he said, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Everyone in this room falls into that trap on occasion. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. At some point, you, you fall into that trap of taking your eyes off of him and, and, and suddenly being satisfied and overwhelmed by the lesser things of this world. And from time to time, you gotta read Psalm 8 and just shout it. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Second thing, we must be honest about the lowliness of man. Okay, so the first thing is we need our eyes awakened to the majesty of God. The second idea from Psalm 8 is we we must be honest about the lowliness of man. Verse 3 and 4, he says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, 
what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David's walking under this starry night sky and he's, he's being overwhelmed by the bigness of God and then he suddenly realizes that he's so small, he's so insignificant in the grand scheme of things and, and, he, and he has an awareness of his lowliness and, and you'll notice it's only one little phrase of one verse. He, the whole psalm is not just about that. He goes somewhere else, but for just a moment, he allows his heart to be, to be almost overwhelmed. Not overwhelmed, but almost overwhelmed by the lowliness and his smallness of his life. How could you be mindful of someone as small as me when, when you're that God that was just described? What do I mean by lowliness? Well, when I speak of the lowliness, maybe I could describe it in three different ways. First, I think our lowliness, I, I'm referring to our creatureliness. Our creatureliness. That's a word we don't use very often. We have to recognize that there's one creator and we're not him. We're the work of his hands. Actually, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. If we need to understand our lowliness, the first thing to understand is that we are clay in the potter's hands. He molds us, he created us, he, he infused us with the breath of life, and he'll take that breath of life away on the day he so desires and chooses. That's how that works. So, so we're, we're just a creature under the creator, okay? This is getting an awareness of our lowliness. You see the work of the stars and you suddenly realize I'm not him, I'm a creature. Number two, you recognize in your lowliness, your creatureliness, then you recognize your, your dependence, your dependence on him. If we truly are creatures, then, then everything in our life is utterly dependent on him. We love the phrase, we're masters of our own destinies. We love to, the idea that, that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna drive our future, but that's not the biblical worldview. There's one master of our destiny, whether we believe it or not, he's sovereign over it all. It's not us, it's him. We're utterly dependent on him for everything. We like to take credit for it all. We like to look back and say, yeah, we did. it's because we worked hard, because we studied, because we organized, because we did so and so. And, and then what Paul does when he begins to boast of these things and all the stuff he accomplished, he says, <laughs> he goes, it was all, it was all nothing compared to the power and the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. See, see, our lowliness is understanding our utter dependence on God. When, you, when that begins to click in your soul, you begin to live this life that, that's very peculiar in the world. You're, you're marked. You are very clearly marked as someone that does not depend on yourself, but is truly clinging for all circumstances, in good and in hardship. And thirdly, our sinfulness. Our lowliness must encompass our sinfulness. Not only are we creatures, but we're creatures in rebellion to God. And this, this should actually overwhelm David, right? If he's getting an accurate picture of the majesty of God, and he's having this, this awe-inspiring moment, the awareness of his sin with Bathsheba, you know the story. He committed adultery with one of his best friend's wives, got her pregnant, and then had his best friend killed, so that he could try to marry Bathsheba before anyone would find out and he could claim it was his own kid? See, see, see w when you're staring up at a holy night sky and you know the fullness of who God is, just for a moment, 
there ought to be an overwhelming sense of, I'm that sinful. Jesus says, if you break even the tiniest commandment of God's law, you're guilty underneath the fullness of the law. He said, look, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you feel anger towards a brother, you're already liable to judgment. He scans the human heart, and Jesus says, you don't understand a tenth of the depravity of your own sin. And that's even what you do know. Because what you do know, when you really think about it, you weep over the scars you've caused in other people's lives. And you don't know the fullness of it the way I do. And David's just overwhelmed by the reality of it. His pride, his ego, his lust, his one-upsmanship, his idolatry, all of it was a declaration. A declaration of rebellion against the one God who was the creator of it all. He's beginning to get a sense of the loneliness of himself. And the greatest of all sins... The, the, the sin that just, that just pulverizes humanity is the sin of pride. The, and, and the way it lurks up most often is when we begin to look around the room and we begin to think, you know, I'm not as bad as the person next to me. I, I've got it more together. The Apostle Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. And yet we're in the room thinking, I probably got it more together than the guy next to me. Pride. The same sin that Satan fell as a result of. King Manasseh in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read the story of King Manasseh. King Manasseh grew proud as a king. He had this gold, gold crown on his head, and he began to walk pretty pompously, thinking, look at the things I've accomplished. And then God in his mercy, this is something God's teaching me right now, that, that when God tries you, that when God puts you through the furnace, it's his mercy to form something new in you. God in his mercy allows King Manasseh and his kingdom to be overthrown by the enemy. And, and, and he loses his kingship, and he eventually becomes enslaved, tied to a wrought iron pole. Listen to what happens in 2 in Chronicles chapter 33, 11 and 12. Therefore, because of Manasseh's pride, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when Manasseh was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So here's my question. To which do you think Manasseh, at the end of his days, was more grateful? The golden crown or the iron rod? I suppose when you read Manasseh's life, that the thing that he's most grateful for is the iron rod that finally humbled him to call out in humility and dependence on his God. Because the iron crown only led, or the, the golden crown only led him into further pride, further away from his God. But it was when God tried him, it was when God removed that crown and led him into slavery that he finally called out, humbled himself. This is why Christians, we always recognize everything is from God. Even the trials in our life are God forming something new in us. We're utterly dependent on him to govern every step. One of my prayers for us as a church always is that we would learn our lowliness before God uses discipline to teach it to us. Ooh. The Lord's had to do that to me over the years. And my prayer is always that we would avoid that. This psalm, so far, what it's done is it's, it's created this great chasm, hasn't it? The, the wonder and the majesty of God and the, the small lowliness of man. And after verse four, you're left almost wondering what could bridge that gap? 
between the holiness of God and the lowliness of man. Well, the third idea we see in the psalm is that we must be astounded at the significance of man in God's plan. We must be astounded at the significance of man in God's plan. Verses five to eight, despite his lowliness, he says, yet you've made him, man, a little, a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. Despite our loneliness, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Despite our loneliness, God has, God has called every man and woman to something so significant that if we recognized our place in the, in the, in the universe, with the two trillion galaxies that exist and our role that we play as we walk around this earth, we would, we would just look up to God and say, you gave that responsibility to us? Why? How can we make good on this? He refers to angels. You know, when you think of angels all through scripture, even if you don't have too deep an understanding of what angels are, the, the, the stories, you have to have a sense of what they were doing. They're these creatures that God has created that are, that are, that are in such close proximity and community with God that, that, that God is giving them instructions and they're doing different things. Some angels are just right around the throne room of God, big ones, big ones with, with four different heads and multiple wings. And when their wings fly, it sounds like rushing waters. And they're just constantly proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what they were created for. Isn't that an amazing creature? One day you're going to see those. Yeah, and you're going to fall on your face before them when you recognize the majesty of God and his creativity over those ones. Some of the angels are messengers sent to, to care for us, says the New Testament. They're ministers sent to tend to the needs of the saints. Sometimes you've hosted people in your home who were angels in disguise. That's what the New Testament says. How about that? That's incredible. Makes you want to be a better friend, doesn't it? Some angels are warrior angels. We just studied Daniel. We learned all about Michael, the archangel Michael, big strong one who went, and when there were battles that Christians and that the people of God were going through, behind the scenes, Michael was defending them in the spiritual world. Now, you think of angels, and, then, and what their responsibility is. And then David says, you know, man is not too far removed from those angels. We're, we're just, in one sense, we're one step below them. With all the responsibilities they have as they go to and fro from God doing his work, isn't that what we are too? I mean, isn't that what distinguishes us from all the other creatures in God's creation? That, that the primary responsibility every man and woman has is, is to be sent from God and to do his bidding and his work around the world? Particularly, he calls out the dominion mandate. The dominion mandate is given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. When God looked at Adam and Eve in the garden, he said he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. This is the dominion mandate. The responsibility that God has given humanity is to create and cultivate the way God created and cultivated. It's the dominion mandate. Man was instructed to go out and build society. To have children and raise them up to know and love the Lord. To, to eventually build government and, and to 
to take care of the environment and to, to care for the animals and to farm and to build business. And, and, and God has instructed and given dominion to man to steward the resources of this earth. That's a remarkable responsibility to, in a sense, be like a, like a little version of God. Not God, but, but God is the ultimate creator and cultivator. But then he's given this responsibility to go out and to be like him. We're to bring beauty to God's creation. We're to take precious care of all that God's give, gifted us. We're to steward all the children that walk into a church like this and tenderly care for their minds and their hearts, to raise them to know and love God, and ultimately to exercise dominion over all creation. What is man that you're mindful of? Why? why? See, see, if you get that, then, then what should come out of you is this sense of, I'm not worthy for that role. I, I'm not worthy to be just a little lower than the angels and be sent out to do your work, God, that God that I know so well. Who am I that you would give me that responsibility? But there's something more in this psalm that, that we, it's easy to miss. The psalm actually points beyond itself. The psalm points to an even deeper truth and a special place that humans have in all of creation. And we know that because in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, actually references this psalm in relation to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 9 says this, But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He's quoting this psalm. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See, the fullness and the weight of this psalm, it, it revolves not just around all of humanity, but ultimately the reality that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, became human. And you, 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 gotta, you gotta sit in that one for a second. The, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jump down to verse 14, I think it is. And the word became flesh, majesty incarnate into blood and into bones and into skin, stepping into human affairs. He entered the filth and the dirt and the brokenness and the sin of it all, never sinning himself, but stepping into all of the corruption that we had brought as a result of our sin. You know, it, you can't really get the incarnation and you can't be in awe of it until you first understand those two ideas of the great chasm that exists between us and God. If you're not in awe of the majesty of God or you're not overwhelmed by the lowliness of man, the incarnation is not astounding. But if you see the distance that had to be covered for that majesty to enter into this filth, then you look at the child in the womb of Mary as a fetus growing in a woman's stomach and you just say, <sighs> and, and then you begin to say, why? Why, why did you come? Why, why would you do that? Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We crucified him. We really did it. 
majesty took on flesh, and we crucified him. And it, it wasn't that guy's fault over there. It was yours and my sin that kept him pinned to the cross. We really did it. See, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And, and when majesty entered into humanity, it was something about the importance of humanity and God's plan that was the driving motivator and factor in that decision to come. Because we're a little lower than the angels. And because we were so far cut off because of our sin that there was no way that any man could ever get back to God. And so God came down and he paid the wages. The wages were death. And out of love, he went to a cross and he sat underneath the judgment of God on our behalf. And all the wages were poured on his shoulders so that anyone who would call on the name of Jesus, anyone who would repent of their sin and say, I, I, I receive you as Lord. I recognize your majesty. I recognize my lowliness. I see what I've done. And there's only one hope. It's trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I receive it. And God says, it's a free gift of grace. Not of works that no one can boast. God says in that moment, what takes place is a new birth where God rips out the old and he brings new into your life. And in that moment, your sins are cast away from you as far as the east is from the west. And you're given what's called the life that is truly life. See, it's the life that Psalm 8 is pointing to of knowing God for the very first time and walking in the fullness of knowing your place in all of creation. That your life matters, that you're not forgotten that you have an identity, and that identity, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, is locked solid. It cannot be taken from you. No matter how many sins you add in, no matter how, many, someone else, how often someone else tells you you're not worth it, whatever it is, when you place your faith in Jesus, it's all separated, and you are a new creation, fully loved in Christ. That's the gospel. Let me, let me give us some takeaways from this. I want you to apply this, and I want you to apply it in a, in a pretty relative way, relevant way. Psalm 8, the majesty of God, the lowliness of man, and our place in the grand scheme of all that God's doing. It's pretty astounding. The reality is, is that all of us in our modern world are tempted with some of the great temptations, and that is this, to find our identity of who we are, the meaning of our lives, where our value comes from, where our worth comes from, it, to find it in everything other than God. And to look around the world, to look at our achievements, to look at our relationships, to look at our personality, to look at our skills, to look at what people say about us, to look at what people don't say about us, to look at our influence, to look at our status, to look at our money, and, and all of those things, the, 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 the trap for Christians as well, it's for everybody, but Christians fall into this, and we shouldn't, is to find your value of who you are by looking to the things of this world around you rather than to the anchor of the majestic God who's declared you a child adopted into God's family. And when you begin to find your value and your identity and your sense of self-worth based on all the things around you, it destroys you. This is where all insecurity comes from. And we are a culture plagued by insecurity. It sneaks in. Constantly worried what someone else thinks, what someone else said. Where does that come from? Well, it's because you, you, you haven't got Psalm 8 yet. If you get Psalm 8, then you get it. You, you know it. Last week, I took my kids to a birthday party. They're six years old, and there's this 
wonderful rock climbing gym up on the north side. And it's, just, it's amazing what they can do now. So the, the kids strap into a harness, and there are these huge tall walls. They're probably double the size of these walls, and they're just little six-year-old girls. <laughs> but they strap into a harness, and, but the harness is anchored to, to a bolt up at the top. And it calculates their weight. It knows exactly what to do, how to get them down slowly once they release themselves from the wall. I don't have to do anything. I just let them climb. Well, the first time they start climbing the wall, they get about 10 feet up, and both of them, they just freeze. They're climbing, and they're just terrified. They're looking around, and they're, Daddy, help, help, right? Because here's what they're doing. They're looking around at, at everything around them, and, and they're, they're getting their sense of safety based on everything around them, and what they see is, this is not good. But then I'm down there, I'm saying, no, 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 you're anchored at the top. You, you, you could fall right now, and you'd be fine. No, 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 Dad, no, Dad, no. Just put another hand up. Just keep going. You're anchored. It's not going to go anywhere. And slowly you watch them begin to release and feel. The first time they just fall and they're like, oh, the anchor has me. And then they go a little higher. And then they, they fall and they go real slow to the bottom and they go, oh, the anchor held. And after a few minutes, they're climbing up the top of all these rocks. See, if you don't realize that you are anchored from above you, by the majesty of God, and you just look to all the things of this world to try to find your identity, two things will be true, very true of you. Number one, you'll be wildly insecure, always, always. You'll be haunted by your insecurities because you'll always feel like you're not living up to the person next to you. You'll come into a room like this and you'll think, man, if people really knew that I don't know the Bible as well as I want them to think I do. And so you just close up, you don't really talk that much. Because you're insecure. You're, you're afraid of the judgment of other people. But not only will you be insecure, but then you'll be unbelievably judgmental. Because when you come into a room, the first thing you're doing is sizing up the competition and getting your rank in the line. And because we all think of ourselves far greater than we actually are, we bump ourselves ahead of the line, and then we tend to look down our noses at the people over here and idolize the people over here. You'll be wildly insecure, wildly judgmental, but the gospel cuts through all of this. And Psalm 8 is the, it's like this standard psalm that just beats the rhythm of look up. Don't find your identity here. Know who you are as a creator, as a creature made by the creator, the majesty on high who entered into humanity. And whenever you begin to get tempted, just look up because you are bolted up top by your creator. He knows you. He loves you. Cling to him. Hold to him. Don't let go. And when you get that temptation to begin to get insecure by what other people are doing and begin to live like the rest of the world, you look up and you keep allowing your eyes to be opened to the strength of the God who has secured you. See, this is the, the peculiar mark of a follower of Christ. We're different. It's a different life. And it's a good life. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We don't understand a fraction of the depth of that psalm. But something in us, when we hear it, it strikes a nerve that if it really is that good, then it must be true. Lord, I pray for those in this room right now that are very far from the Lord or suffering. Jesus, I pray that you would bring about an overwhelming sense of the amazing love of Jesus and that there would be new birth, Holy Spirit filling, 
right now in this room that praise would burst forth from dry rock. God, have your way with this church. Do a wonderful work here this summer. We love you, Lord. Amen.